electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you very much, Scott, and welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead this hour. The Dow's at a record. The S&P and NASDAQ are touching 52-week highs. Yields are down to levels we haven't seen since the summer. But did the Fed actually give Wall Street the all-clear? Our economist isn't convinced. Plus, the most heavily shorted S&P stocks are the same ones up double digits so far this month. That's a warning sign to one equity strategist. He'll tell us what it means for the staying power of this rally. And mortgage rates have a six handle for the first time since May, while rents in one key market are falling for the first time in two years. Whether we're on the brink of a major turning point in real estate. Before that, though, let's get the very latest on today's market action. A really extraordinary two days here. Bob Pisani on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. Bob? Yes, and the rally continues. And the breadth of the rally is what's kind of, well, breathtaking in a sense. Let me just show you the major averages. Uh, the S&P is having a nice day. It's up about a half a percent. But the equal weight S&P 500 is doing even better. And this has been what's going on all week. There's that RSP there. That's a good way of indicating how broad the rally is. A lot of stocks are participating because everything is equal weight in the S&P 500. We do have a new high on the Dow Industrials, historic high, NASDAQ uh, down fractionally, but also a new, essentially a new high yesterday. Uh, 350 or so new highs at the NYSE, more than 300 at the NASDAQ, just all over the place. JP Morgan, Boeing, Apple, historic high uh, yesterday, Home Depot, uh, Goldman Sachs also doing really well recently, uh, Intel all uh, doing really well. I just want to show you uh, another example of how the market's breadth is, is, uh, is wide here. High beta stocks have been very hot this week. So there's the uh, SPHP, that's a high beta index. These are stocks that move more than the market moves. So when the market starts moving quickly, momentum traders go into these stocks because if the S&P is up 1%, they typically would be up, say, 2% on a day. And in an up market, that's a lot of money all of a sudden. Let me show you examples of some typical high beta names. Carnival, look at these moves up here. And they were up big yesterday, too. Generac, Blackstone, Broadcom. These stocks all tend to move. They have high betas. They tend to move more when the S&P is up they're up even more. And so you see the market momentum people coming in in a very, very big way. Finally, just want to mention the regional banks just on fire this week. Almost every one of the big regional banks are up in the mid-teens right now. So there's, and this is just today. Yesterday, they were up the same thing here. Regions, Sinovus, Citizens, doesn't matter. Kelly, it's just been a remarkable week overall. And Bob, I was struck that when you checked in with Art Cashin, he was still pretty bullish. Yeah. We'll get his mic back. We'll play you the Art Cashin clip. It's very, uh, very interesting. But my next guest is also one of the most, if not the most bullish market strategists coming into this year. The S&P 500 is still going to finish about 200 points above his initial target, and he thinks the rally will continue into next year. His base case is 5,100 by year end. Bullish case takes us to 5,500 next year for the S&P. Joining me here on set now is Binky Chata, chief global strategist at Deutsche Bank. Welcome to you. 
Thank you. Let's rewind the clock for a minute, <laughs> shall we? Yeah. Now, do you often find yourself towards the top of the pack, or was, was a year ago kind of an aberration? Uh, so I, I, I would say a year ago, we were at the top of the pack. By the middle of the year, we were in the middle of the pack. You were in the, the middle. Everyone <laughs> else, they yeah. vaulted over you. Right, right. Uh, I, I, I would say, you know, so far, I mean, year's not over. There's still a couple of weeks. It tends to get a little slower as you go in. Uh, and what we've seen, of course, you know, is a very, very steep rally. So the counterpart of that is positioning has been rising, I would say, almost vertically, uh, which is not, you know, the healthiest sign. Uh, and so, yeah, it would be just a little bit careful here, but I don't think it's a big deal. I think, you know, we had, I would call it a game changer yesterday uh, because I think you have to keep the macro backdrop in mind for about five, six quarters now. The macroeconomic consensus has been of the strong, I would say, almost unanimous view that growth was going to fall off a cliff. That obviously hasn't happened. And so that's the reason for why we got the rally. But the cloud of, you know, are we still going to go into a recession? I would say remains as thick and loud as ever. And, and, and so I think what yesterday does is it definitely reduces the probabilities that we, you know, that that downside scenario materializes. And so we should, you know, basically look for, uh, you know, first, uh, maybe some upgrades to the macro consensus, maybe some taking off of the downside. And, and I would not really underestimate the power of that consensus, how strong it's been for how long it's been. I would argue it's permeated through everything, investor perceptions. I would say growth's been pretty good, but perceptions have been very, very poor. Uh, I would say companies are, you know, concerned about uh, getting in front of this uh, huge, unanimous, strong view. uh, And so guidance is poor. I think so. This, you know, does, you know, lift some of those clouds. I think it would be a gradual process. And it so it was interesting to note your tone of caution a little bit about maybe the snapback has gone a little has gotten a little extended. I did check the CNN, the fear and greed index, one of my favorites. And we're at 71. So we're almost in extreme greed territory. But rarely. I mean, this is now widespread euphoria. Um, you know, you, you could wait for some course correction, but I do think it's important to just pause and say this year so far has played out contrary to how almost anyone had predicted. Are you bottoms up or top down? How did you get to that 4,500 number a year ago? Uh, we are top down. Uh, and uh, what I would say is the very early part of the rally was really, you know, a call for a positioning squeeze. And the positioning squeeze was really not about investors who were focused on the fundamentals of the market. It was really a, a call for a positioning squeeze on systematic strategies because vol, vol was very, very elevated last year. That was courtesy of, you know, same people that gave us the vol yesterday. Right. Uh, it's it's really the, 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 you know, very volatile Fed hiking cycle that we had. And so, you know, a very simple take would be if you looked at systematic strategies, you know, on, on, a, on a Z-score plus minus one, they were at minus two and, and, it, and it was all really coming from elevated vol. So the call was really that rates of all would come down because Almost unless they, it, it, yeah, it, 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 so, you know, to maintain vol, you need to sort of 
keep providing more and more, more and more shocks to the system. So, you know, we're going to do 25, maybe we're going to do 50, 75. At some point, you run out of a runway, and at some point, you've already raised rates quite a lot. And that's exactly what happened. But I would say after that comes really... So the first part was the squeeze as we are, you know, taking stock of the year that just went by. Uh, I would say then it's really about uh, uh, the fundamentals taking over. And I would say... Yes, we have this recession narrative on the macro. Yes, it, it, it has not played out yet. But if you look basically at earnings, earnings peaked in the second quarter of last year, fell in the third and the fourth. But that was very, very clear bottom. And earnings are up basically pretty strongly this year, I would say. In the first nine months, uh, you know, we've got 11.5% earnings growth. Mm. Uh, that's pretty good in nine months. Uh, Let me ask you a, a, a business cycle question. Sure. And, um, you know, I'm very sympathetic to the arguments for the slowdown, so I, I know them very well. And you do look at the leading indicators and things like that, and we've, we are on at historic levels. I mean, the index of leading indicators is down for how many months in a row? Sure. Continuing jobless claims are up year on year. The unemployment rate, you know, we almost hit that half a percent mark. There's there's signs that it can't get much better than this. In other words, that the business cycle is peaking. And I'm just curious how long, I know this might not exactly be the way you evaluate the market, but how long can we stay in a place like this as we start to talk about how much further the rally can extend next year? So, so you know, I mean, uh, if you would allow me, I would just change the question around Please, a little yeah. bit uh, <laughs> and, and, and ask, you know, a rhetorical question. I mean, are we in 94, 95, uh, or are we in 99? I would say there's many more parallels with 94, 95. So it is very possible for the cycle to go a very long ways from here. The interesting thing about that cycle and the soft landing that we got back then is we never saw a real tightening of, of uh, for instance, in the senior loan officer survey, those kinds of things. That, that never happened, and that's happening now. So it, it feels like those kinds of things point you towards a different outcome. I'd say it is and it isn't, because if you look at the senior loan officer survey for the last quarter, it actually eased got a, a little, little bit. bit. <laughs> <laughs> and if you look back, basically, at uh, the sluice, uh, you know, generally tends to peak in a recession, mm. has very, very few false turns. So the question is whether you want to believe the turn down. And I would, in the 2001 recession, you know, we went down, then we tightened again a little bit, but it did mark the turning point in the end. Interesting. So I'm saying it may not be straight down, but it has improved, number one. Number two, what I would say is that I actually don't pay, I mean, I pay attention to the sluice because everybody else pays attention to the sluice. But, you know, do simple exercise and just overlay the sluice of the ISM. It's not hard to do. And you'll see that, you know, what the sluice is, why it got a little better is because the ISM's picked up a little bit. Uh, they're, they're pretty strongly, positively correlated. And so, you know, if, if growth does pick up from here, and this goes back to my very first point, if, you know, the Fed is not going to be hiking aggressively, it does reduce. And, and maybe even easing, uh, it, you know, I, 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 I'm a little cautious there because we are talking about six months from now. Sure. Uh, and, and we just had two rather large changes, one in two weeks and one in three months. So it would be a little hesitant to discuss six months out. We can talk about it, of course. But uh, One quick final question. I, there's like 10 more things I'd love to ask you, but I'll, I'll stick with this one. So this was the year that the Magnificent Seven got their name, literally. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, do you make a call so specific as to say whether that market leadership can continue or do you talk about kind of different leadership 
areas. I'm curious what you would make of, of people who are trying to get a little bit more tactical. Yeah, so, so I would say two things. You know, uh, uh, obviously, a lot of people point to the Magnificent Seven and say the rally has been, you know, very thin uh, and narrow. I think it's very important to keep in mind that basically, uh, uh, you know, whenever you have a change, it's very important to evaluate where you're coming from and was that, you know, sort of, I mean, if we were in a happy equilibrium and all was well with the world uh, and, and then only seven stocks rally, then I would worry about it. But I mean, if you look at last year, you know, that's where the sell-off was. So why would one expect everybody else to rally when they didn't really fall that much? Uh, so that's the first point. The second point I would make is is that we are, you know, it, it, so we caught the big move up in January. Uh, uh, we then, you know, it, it, it moved into sort of the fundamental turnaround in their earnings, which was taking place. Uh, it, it, by June, we went neutral mega cap and growth, uh, mega cap growth in tech, because while we we're very, very constructive on their earnings and their fundamentals, on a relative basis, we think there's just too much priced in, basically. And that's where you still are and, now. And, 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 exactly. And so we're really looking for the rally to broaden. I wouldn't be short them because they do grow their earnings a lot faster than everybody else does. But we are looking for the rally to broaden. So I would look elsewhere for now, but a neutral on mega cap growth. Fascinating. 5,100 base case, 5,500 in the bullish case. Mm -hmm. And real quickly, what gets us to the bullish case? What would be the... It's just a better... It's, it's the macro consensus giving up on the recession, basically, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and a better macro growth outlook. The bullish case is actually if we have 2.5% GDP growth in the U.S., We've had more than that for the last five quarters. So I would argue it's a very reasonable alternative to consider. Incredible turn of events. One of the few people who kind of uh, had the right position in coming into it. Binky, thanks for joining us today. Pleasure. Good to check in with you. Binky Chada from Deutsche Bank. Well, let's go from the glass half full view to the more pessimistic take on the economy. We did get strong data this morning. Retail sales unexpectedly rose in November. New jobless claims were down by 19,000. But Double Line's Jeff Gunlock did warn the good news won't keep up forever. Here's what he said on CNBC yesterday. We've broken down below the trend line on the 10-year Treasury yield that goes back a couple of years. And there's a lot of room below it. I, I, I would uh, guess that we will see the 10-year Treasury yield in the low threes sometime next year. And that would be consistent, in my view, only with the Fed cutting more like, I don't know, 200 basis points or even more uh, next year. So I, I think we're looking for a recession next year. We've been talking about this. The market seems to be picking up on that. Well, on that note, let's pick up with David Rosenberg. He's the founder and president at Rosenberg Research, joining us on the phone line today. David, it's good to see you. I don't know if you caught our discussion just now with Binky Chata, but he makes a pretty compelling case for why we're going to dodge the downturn this time around, at least uh, for the time being. Uh, well, Kelly, thanks for uh, having me on. Uh, I don't know why uh, anybody would think that uh, we've necessarily dodged uh, the downturn. Uh, the last thing I would do is uh, extrapolate uh, 2023 into 2024. And uh, there's people like him that were extrapolating 2007 into 2008 and got their heads sliced off, uh, or extrapolating 2000 and 2001, getting their heads sliced off, extrapolating 1989 into 1990, getting their heads sliced off. We've been on a soft landing for at least a year, but the soft landing is just that transition phase of the business cycle, that the bridge from the expansion phase to the contraction phase, which will be next year's story. 
And uh, I believe that is why all the Fed talked about at the two-day meeting. And the only thing they talked about was how far and how fast will we be cutting rates in the next two years. The stock market is only looking at, wow, rates are going to come down, without thinking about why is it that rates are going to be coming down. And what struck me in the Fed's stop loss on the economy is that they're calling for 3.8% nominal GDP growth next year. 3.8% nominal. Uh, I actually think it's going to be closer to 2 to 3%, but that's their forecast. And, and so the stock market's priced for a double-digit earnings growth next year. And that's not going to happen if the Fed's right on nominal GDP. Uh, so they both can't be right. Uh, so I think that you have to ask yourself, why is the Fed at least verbally pivoting so dramatically? Uh, they're seeing something right now that I think a lot of folks in the marketplace aren't seeing. Uh, or maybe they're seeing what we're all seeing, which is receding inflation. And that's the best you know, thing to react to because it's, you don't have to worry about the, the worsening data. You can just react to that, that breathing room, right? I mean, Dave, what would you say, quick last question here, is, is the lesson, the, the takeaway from 2023, a year in which it looked like we were going to tip into recession at any moment, and we continued to be surprised by the fact that it, it didn't show up. Right. And what I'm trying to say is that 2023, when you were asking your previous guests, what does this look like? 2023 looks like 2007. So all it was was the bridge. I think the people that were pounding the fist on the table, uh, the recession starting this year, uh, were just too early. But let me just say this, because I know you asked about retail sales. Uh, there'll be revisions to that number, as we saw what happened in October, and it's a very small sample size in the first go-around. Here's what we know, Kelly. We know that the Fed is listening more right now to their business contacts around the country than they are to the spurious and off-revised economic data that's coming out of the BLS and other government sources. And when you go to the base book that came out November 29th, what did they say? Right. They said that two-thirds of the country is either stagnating or contracting right now. So for all we know, the recession is already starting. It's not in the data but it's in the anecdotal information that business contacts, not government statisticians, are telling the Fed right now. Well, I, I so agree. When we, this, when we do this interview, I'd say two, three months from now, I get a sense that the conversation is going to be a little bit different than we're having today. All right. I'm putting it down for Feb 14th, Valentine's Day. We will check back in as a status update. Dave. It's, it's, it's the economy, Cupid. <laughs> Thank you very, very much for joining us. We really appreciate it. David Rosenberg. Coming up, the drop in the 10-year yields are pushing mortgage rates towards their lowest level since mid-May. We're down a full point from that multi-year high of 8.03%. The president of the National Association of Realtors weighs in on that and will join us in her first interview since a federal jury found the NAR liable for artificially inflating home sales commissions. And as we head to break, here's a look at markets. Dow hanging on to an 87-point gain after yesterday's surge. The S&P's up 6 to 47.13. The Nasdaq has turned negative. We didn't get to talk to Bob Bassani about it due to technical issues, but let's see what UBS floor director and Wall Street veteran Art Cashin expects from markets next year. It's an election year, and that tends to be good for the market as people are making projections and promises and programs, um, and even the upward bias on an election year when a sitting president 
is running for re-election, that compounds it even more. The best of all those historical patterns is when an incumbent president is deciding to go for re-election. And he needs a decent economy to back him up. This is The Exchange on CNBC. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve with the help of T-Mobile for Business. Our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. That initial drop in yields after the Fed's meeting yesterday has picked up even more steam today. The 10-year Treasury, remember, was at nearly 4.25% just on Monday, and today was down in the 380s. That plunge means the 30-year fixed mortgage rate is back below 7%, all the way down to 682, if not lower today, and that's its lowest level since mid-May. Let's bring in Matt Graham here. He's Mortgage News Daily's chief operating officer. Matt, I'm seeing numbers even, you know, 6.6% now. That's right. Yeah, 6.62 was what I updated it to uh, a short while ago. It's been a, a staggering two-day move, one that of the biggest two-day moves we've seen. Unbelievable. And then people were already running the analysis on social media, but saying, you know, if you were one of the people who had to, unlucky if you had to buy at 8%, it probably already makes sense to refi. Yeah, I mean, definitely that's uh, the calculus, right? Uh, sometimes as, as little as half a percent can motivate somebody to refi, depending on what their motivations are, whether they need cash out, et cetera. So what do we make of this dynamic for the housing market? 6.6% is still much higher than most people in their 40s, whatever their home buying audiences are, are used to. Uh, it's better, but it's not great. Right. Yeah, that's how they get you, right? Now we're excited for rates to come down to 6.6%. I think when rates were moving up and over 4 and 5%, uh, this would have looked pretty bad. So everything's relative. But uh, for sure, we've already seen the application data start to pick up even before the last two days of gains, uh, talking about MBA's mortgage applications, and in the refi category as well. Now, they're picking up from historically very, very poor low levels, but picking up nonetheless. And uh, there's definitely a, a buzz that is increasing in the housing and mortgage market over the past two days. What would you expect the rate to be into next year based on what the Fed said yesterday? Oh, yeah, that's that's good. Get me with the predictions, right? <laughs> um, you know, I love those. So, look, the the rate momentum is as good as the trajectory of economic data. So if the data continues to do what it has been doing, uh, there's no reason rates couldn't go down into the fives, possibly even high fours. If, you know, some of the, the talking heads are right about recession in 2024, uh, that's not unreasonable to think that we could see that territory that quickly. But it really depends on economic data 
chiefly inflation, getting to the 2% target. And quick final question, but as most people in the market are well familiar, the spread is still historically wide. And is there any sign of that normalizing? Um, I, I wouldn't say there's a sign of it normalizing. It's coming down. Uh, and it makes sense to me where the spread is, given the rapidity of the move toward higher yields. And it is something that should naturally come down as rates overall come down hmm. and as uh, volatility sort of dies down. That would be a great double tailwind, wouldn't it? We'll see if it helps yeah, the market. Matt, thanks so much. Good to check in with you. We appreciate it. You too. Matt Graham with Mortgage me. News Daily. That plunge in rates, as he said, 6.62 today, could bring some relief to the frozen housing market after pending home sales fell to their lowest level on record in October. My next guest has a front row seat to that drama. Tracy Casper is president of the National Association of Realtors. This is also her first interview, national interview, since losing that court case over keeping commissions artificially high. Tracy, it's good to have you here. Welcome. Thank you, Kelly. I really appreciate you having me on the show this morning. I was thinking, I mean, you have more drama between what's going on at NAR, what's going on in the housing market, what's going on with commissions. This is like you're like in the middle of a hurricane. So uh, maybe we'll just start with the, the overall housing market. Or do you think this will give realtors a bit of a sigh of relief on what's been a very tough year? With regards to the interest rates, is that the question? Yes. Yeah, sorry. With regards to mortgage rates, at least, you know, 6.6%. That's, that's much better. Absolutely. I just heard your, your previous speaker. No, there's no question. So what our buyers, because we do have still such a pent up buyer pool that's just been waiting on the sidelines. The interest rates rose so quickly that it took so many of them out of the market. So we are starting to feel them come back in. They're going to finally start to be successful. The affordability factor, of course, comes into that first and foremost. So we're we're excited about that news. We're tentative about that news, meaning we know that while those buyers are coming in, the other thing we're facing is that we still have a shortage of inventory. We do not have enough houses to ad um, adequately take care of that demand that's out there. So we're watching that. We're going to be talking a lot to our sellers and helping them recognize opportunities in the market. So, yeah, things should start be churning again. It's very, very different. I mean, covering the real estate crisis in 06 and everything went up and down at the same time to see a market where the existing market market is frozen, but home builder stocks are at an all-time high is truly bizarre. Just kind of what's your firsthand experience in Boise? I mean, are prices coming down? Is that going to be one lever of normalization here, or, or are they staying high? Well, there's a couple of factors in play, and you touched on both of them. It's interesting because we have such a lack of inventory that the builders are the gap fillers. They're the ones that are being successful in the market right now. They're doing a lot to help incentivize those buyers by offering a rate down by you know, incentives and that sort of thing to help get them in the market. It's that existing inventory that we really are crunched on. So with regards to this market kind of moving and churning, having that inventory come on, having the, the builders be successful, having the buyers now be successful, we're seeing such a normalization of the market. And it's something that is very welcome, to be honest. We were looking for this kind of uh, normalization maybe in that 2018, 2019. Hmm. We thought 2020 would be that year. And then we have the pandemic. So having those two years of these super sweeping, high increasing double digit year over year increases in pricing, that's really what has stymied the market. So yeah. now here we are over the last 18 months and things have normalized. The market has only increased about 4%. Those are the single digit increases we've been waiting for. And they're here and we're, we're looking forward to that. That's a good 
normal market. So let me turn to the, how the, the experience could be changing uh, for people who are buying and selling their homes going forward. I've noticed there's now a lot of other commission lawsuits. There's ones on the West Coast and so forth as this appears to be gaining traction. Um, do you foresee a time in the next year or two where the way we've been doing business and home sales is no longer and buyers are going to have to pay for their own agent and sellers are no longer going to be paying uh, their by the buyer's commission? So it's interesting as we look at this, and I will tell you, first and foremost, I'm a realtor. I work with my buyers and sellers every single day. I'm also a broker owner, so I get to work with my agents and definitely on the forefront. And you mentioned I'm in the Boise, Idaho market. And as I heard that verdict that day, I will tell you my first thought went to my buyers and sellers. So first for the sellers, let's just talk about that. They have had so many options in the market. They've always had options in the market, whether it's a flat fee, an hourly rate, or even a percentage. And as we've talked with them and explained to them how we can help to bring more buyers into the market for them. In other words, as we, as a listing broker, and that model is to share some part of the commission that we've negotiated with our seller to our, the buyer's brokers, that incentivizes those buyers and that gets them to the table so that they have that professional representation and can come into that marketplace. The seller wants that. They want as many buyers as possible. That helps them get the best price for their home. You turn that conversely and look at our buyers. Our buyers are already, for the most part, struggled to come up with a down payment. They're struggling to come up with their closing costs in addition to that. And what we don't want to see is the margin, marginalization of those buyers. And we're going we're gonna to talk about our first-time home buyers, our first-generation home buyers, mm -hmm. even our middle and low-income buyers. We talk about our veteran buyers. And we cannot disenfranchise them simply because they can't, out of pocket, pay for professional representation. And then what would happen? Do they come into the market on their own, try to navigate a complex situation with the market, complex process of getting from point right. A to point B and actually closing on the home. And then what we also don't want to see, and this would be the tragedy of all of it, is that those buyers just simply don't come into the market. Now what happens to our sellers? And mm -hmm. that is what this is all predicated on, which is why we will continue to fight. We want to take care of those consumers. And I'm trying to think through if the market fragment, because I thought it was very interesting. So Redfin has now pulled out of NAR, if I'm not mistaken. In order to settle their suits, Remax and Realogy, now that's anywhere, are not going to require agents to be members of NAR going forward. So will this, you know, does this mean that listings will still be funneled through MLS and we'll all have to use realtors and so forth? Or does this mean that now it could be almost more like the rental market where there might be internet listings that anybody can, can uh, come upon. I, have, we, have we fully seen the implications of all of these changes yet? Well, we've watched over all of these years as our markets have progressed and our markets have matured, I will say. So let's talk about the MLS. That is the vehicle by which all of us as brokers share information, which is good for the consumer. That way they don't have to be disenfranchised. It's not fragmented. They don't have to go look here or go look there to see what's there. That MLS is also accurate. A lot of those portals, you know, they're just grabbing data and trying to get the consumer to, to come to them. But at the end of the day, our rules at NAR and with our MLSs make sure that our data is accurate. We're making sure that it's transparent. We're making sure that we have an efficient marketplace so consumers don't have to shotgun it and head to one direction or the other, mm -hmm. but can go to one place. So will the realtor still be valuable? Absolutely. The realtor is there to take all of that information, everything that's out on the Internet, be able to sift through it and put that expertise to it. It's interesting because I, I hear that, you know, the buyers don't need a realtor. They can find their home on the Internet and they can go to the, the seller and they can get it bought. 
at the end of the day, even just that process of finding that home, I can walk in with them and I can say, you qualify for your loan, but the house isn't going to qualify for the loan. The loans are particular and we can put that expertise to work for them before they go down a path of heartbreak or expensive where they've paid for home inspections, they've paid for an appraisal just to find out that the house doesn't qualify. Right. So even that one step... Exactly. Yeah. I was, you know, it, for us going through the process, it's an incredibly nerve wracking process as it is, obviously. Um, and this, a lot of people will say, you know, great, this is going to make it cheaper in, in some ways. And, and I think in like as with many of these moves, it's going to be years before we really know the full effect uh, and how that plays out for people. But Tracy, we appreciate you addressing it. Thanks for coming on today and talking about it. We no, hope to check back you. in with you soon. Absolutely. Thank you. Tracy Casper with the National Association of Realtors. Coming up, New York City rents are dropping for the first time in over two years. We've got the numbers and the implications for inflation and the Fed right after this. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Welcome back. Are we making too much of a short squeeze fueled rally in stocks of the 57 S&P stocks with the highest short interest? 41 percent are up 10 percent or more uh, this month. Our next guest warns the correlation between short interest and equity returns has been running at a high. And after a record Dow closed yesterday, he expects that correlation has only gotten more extreme, which may be a warning sign for markets. Joining me now is Tavis McCourt, Raymond James, institutional equity strategist. Tavis, it's good to see you. So just kind of run us through the historical um, record here and, and how much this episode sticks out to you. Yeah, so so this year is most uh, most notable. Um, there's been three significant periods where um, equity returns have been highly correlated to high levels of short interest, and one of those was late January, uh, which was followed by a uh, um, a pullback in, in equities for the next two months. Uh, another one was uh, May and June on really the AI related rally. Uh, we hung in there for about a month, and then equities kind of started to weaken again. And the third one really has been November and early December. Um, so th- there's a lot of reasons for the rally, but on top of that, we've had a lot of short covering. And um, it doesn't mean that uh, we're going to roll over completely, but it does mean some of the fuel for the um, for the rally has probably uh, neared its end. Does it make you more bearish right now? Cautious, I, w- I would say. Um, you know, I think at some point that the the inflation story is effectively over, um, and uh, you know, but at some point you're gonna you're gonna need better economic data to to keep the rally going at these multiples. When we've had two to three turns of multiple expansion just in the last six weeks, uh, which is really just uh, a substantial amount. You've now got uh, mid caps that you know had been trading twenty to thirty percent below historical norm norms are now only five percent below historical norms. Uh, small caps that were 35, 40% below historical norms are now only about 20% below historical norms. Uh, and, 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 and large caps um, outside the big seven, which were trading kind of 5 to 10% below historical norms, are now 5 or 10% above. So at some point, you've got to have some better earnings um, to, to keep the fire going. So 
I think we're okay, but but you know, the the kind of rally from just the realization that the inflation risk is is likely behind us. Uh, I think that part of this is coming to an end. I like how you say we're a long way from sticking this landing because a lot of people think we're sticking it right now. I want to just ask you what you said there in passing about valuations. Is that also what's been driving this rally, that valuations are up a couple of points? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I mean, you can think of, you know, at least I think of every every equity index is, is basically pricing in a percentage chance of, of a soft landing versus a, a recession. And uh, right now, the, the percentage chance of soft landing is just skyrocketing in the eyes of the market. But uh, and so that's leading to to um, equity values going up. But the, the if you look historically, most of the times after a rate cycle, we don't get a soft landing. Uh, most of the times after a rate cycle, it takes uh, actually an average of 15 months after the last rate hike to start seeing labor market weakness. Like we're only five months after the last rate hike. So, um, you know, it looked like a like a soft landing in 06, too. It looked like a soft landing in, in, in 1989, too. You just don't know for sure. It's going to be a full year or so before we know for sure if this soft landing really is stuck. All right. Takes take some courage uh, to, to issue the warning in a, in a week like this. <laughs> Tavis, thanks for joining us. We appreciate it. Yeah. And we'll find out, All as right. you say, in a couple more weeks if this short squeeze runs, uh, runs out of steam. Coming up, rent inflation in November jumped about 7% from last year. But one very expensive area of the market is seeing costs come down. Why Manhattan rentals could be at a turning point next on The Exchange. Welcome back to The Exchange. It's not just mortgage rates falling. Manhattan rents are dropping for the first time in two years. Robert Frank is here with a look at why we could be at a turning point in that key market, Robert. Well, Kelly, uh, median rents in Manhattan declining by 2% in November. That may not sound like much, but it is the first time in 27 months that rents actually fell in the nation's largest rental market. Median rents now at $4,000 a month. Average rents are still above $5,000 a month. And apartments are still 11% more expensive than they were pre-pandemic. But rising supply, falling employment in New York's financial and tech industries, and basic affordability issues are finally bringing prices down. Brokers say landlords don't want to officially cut list prices, so many are quietly offering a lot of concessions, like a month of free rent or even free parking. Better deals are leading to more rentals. The total number of leases signed in November increased by 10%. Rising supply suggests prices could fall further in 2024, with inventory rising 30% over last year. But don't expect bargains, especially at the top. Luxury apartment prices reached a record $104 per square foot, and the average rental price for a three-bedroom, Kelly, in case you have a lot of kids, is $10,500 a month. So price declines, all relative when it comes to Manhattan. That's right. You just squeeze them all in the same room and say, deal with it. Um, I am curious, Robert, do we take, so is it because more supply is coming onto the market? What are the dynamics here? Are there any signs that this is a leading indicator for the broader rental market? I think, you know, the broader rental market nationwide has been dropping since July. Manhattan was the laggard. Now, what's Got happening it. in Manhattan is, is Partly a supply issue. There's, you know, inventory is building a little bit, but brokers say it's really a demand issue. They had apartments that they were listed in similar buildings in September where they were flooded with calls. Similar apartments listed in October, November, crickets. They're just not hearing from prospective renters. A lot of questions about why that might be, but they're just not getting 
people calling for new rentals right now. So there's a lot of stuff just sitting on the market. That's very strange. So it's not that we suddenly had an influx of supply. It basically seems to be that demand is a little bit quiet. That's interesting. It's a demand issue. And again, some of it might be brokers speculating here, but some of it might be these cutbacks we're seeing, you know, at City and some of the financial institutions also mm-hmm. cutbacks in the tech world. And, you know, we're just not seeing the kind of job growth that we saw really post-pandemic in 2021 in New York City. And, you know, we're not seeing a lot of pop overall population growth in New York due to taxes and all the things we know. So um, this could be a real reckoning, but brokers are really scratching their head at just how suddenly this market has turned around from a demand perspective. I'm scratching my head too. Robert, keep us posted. Really interesting. (laughs) Again, a a bit of good news as long as we can make sure it's good news. Our Robert Frank reporting. We appreciate it. Coming up, we're sticking with real estate. It's one of the top performing sectors today as yields retreat to their summer lows. We'll speak with a developer with $6 billion worth of projects in the pipeline, everything from luxury to affordable housing, about what he is seeing next. That's on The Exchange. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back to The Exchange. Multifamily REITs are on the rise today as the 10-year dips below 4%. My next guest knows a thing or two about that. He's developed over 170 properties in the past three decades, totaling more than $11 billion in real estate assets. For more, let's bring in Kevin Maloney. He's Property Markets Group CEO. Kevin, it's good to have you here. Thanks for joining us. No, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I don't know if you just heard that chat we were having about the, the New York market in particular, where it seems like there's been some demand softness. Yeah, so I, I so I, I'll tell you that in in the rental market specifically, I'm, I have a couple of projects going up in the New York area. We're actually seeing pretty much the opposite of that. Um, maybe there will be some softening, but you you might be aware that the the New York State recently curtailed their 421A program. You you actually cannot launch a rental um, in the New York City corridor without having a 421A tax abatement. Um, so. The supply side of the equation has completely stopped. This, this happened five years ago as well, and we saw a surge in rents. Hmm. Um, Just this remind point, us what, what that yeah. tax abatement does and why it went away. Um, um, have, <laughs> as quickly you as you can. <laughs> no, no, you can. Absolutely. It's a 35-year real estate tax abatement. Taxes might be $20 a square foot, and um, the cost of building housing with, with all housing requires affordable component in New York City. Um, it, it would be impossible based on the cost and the rent structure to launch one and to build one, um, especially in today's environment. But even with where cap rates and interest rates were at 3%, it was not a feasible project. So for decades, many decades, the, the, the state had used what they call a 421A program, which allowed you to have a 30-year tax abatement um, on your real estate taxes while you were in, the, in, in this particular program. Hmm. Which made them viable. That that they have now sunset that program. So if you were not really out of the ground in the last probably six or eight months, um, the, really the supply of affordable, the supply of any um, even market rate or affordable housing has just come to an end. That's really in interesting. So, I haven't been yeah, keeping so, up with my New York yeah, Post reading yeah, clearly. It, you'd have to speak to the legislator up, <laughs> up yeah. in New York, uh, up in Albany. But uh, no question, it's it's again, it's going to. Probably in their wisdom, they felt there was just too much being given away, and um, 
Um, but the, the, the result is the supply side is really just there will be no new housing created. So you think, and, or I, I don't want to put words into your mouth, but it's pretty obvious if there is a stall in new supply coming online, maybe that will put more upward pressure on rents in that market. But you're, you have exposure in a lot of different markets. Uh, what would you say is going on with the consumer, with rent patterns? What, what you're kind of, We're showing so, some of these markets. What are you experiencing? So, so with cheap money, a lot of markets got overbuilt, and that, that is always part of the cycle. Um, and, you know, and then, of course, the Fed, you know, I know we're looking at sulfur at 18 bips uh, 18 months ago, and, you know, sulfur is 530 today, last time I looked, or somewhere around there. I mean, you're talking a 30x increase in a historical short period of time. That really put the brakes on all, I, I don't know anyone who could really get, based on supply chain cost increases, inflation during COVID, I don't know that with capital markets where they are today, you could really launch a rental that made sense anywhere in the United States. So, but 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 saying that, a lot of markets were were seriously overbuilt. Cheap money. A lot of people entered those markets. A lot of units were creating a lot of housing, and and you're going to see softening until that is absorbed and stabilized, and then from there you can see probably start to see some rent increases. But that is, um, that is fascinating, and what you just said about how it's literally not affordable. Kevin, come back. We'd love to do this with a little bit more time and get into it, especially curious what you are financing now as that now is, is stalled out somewhat. Kevin Maloney, we appreciate it today. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Have a nice day. He's Property it. Markets Bye. Group CEO. We'll bring him back. Uh, hopefully see him on camera next time. That does it for the exchange. But next on Power Lunch, Intel shares hitting a 52-week high as the company holds an investor meeting. We'll hear from CEO Pat Gelsinger about how he plans to win the AI chip race. Steve Leesman is joining me on the other side of this break. Don't go anywhere. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve with the help of T-Mobile for Business. Our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.